Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Hi, Ashley. It's good to have you on the Recovery Matters podcast today. Um, Folks probably know a little bit about me, but I was hoping you could introduce yourself. Tell us just a, a little bit about who you are and what, where you're working today, and then I'd love to dig into your story a little bit. Sure. Yeah. My name is Ashley. Um, super excited to be here. Really passionate about recovery. Um, I have seven and a half years sober, and I like to say I'm in recovery from a co-occurring disorder. Um, I think mental health and substance use go hand in hand a lot of times. And um, so alcohol was my drug of preference. And um, I started using around 13. We'll maybe get more into that in a little bit. But um, I also have bipolar and I have a pretty crazy trauma history, which all led to my the severity of my drinking. Um, I, I live in Colorado right now. And I work for a company called Shatterproof, and they do a lot of addiction and recovery advocacy work, policy. Um, They have an ambassador program. They do a lot around learning. But I work for an initiative called Atlas, which, to sum it up, pretty much helps people find um, the best quality treatment that meets their needs. Um, But I'm out in Colorado. Hiking is my favorite thing. And so I'm out hiking outdoors in nature and I really love it here. And I have a lot of, a lot of things up and coming in my plans for my future. We first met at the Associated Recovery and Higher Education Conference in Boston. Um, And I had already heard a lot about you from some close friends, Anne and Jonathan and Colleen, um, who are colleagues at UConn, but um, couldn't speak more highly of you. And you also had some pretty significant impact on leadership at UConn because you received one of the first John Carter Mm -hmm. Whitney scholarships for students in recovery that UConn offers to students who are involved with UConn recovery community. And the letter that you wrote to a student affairs leader really brought their attention to the need and the power and the impact of having a collegiate recovery program. So maybe share a little bit first about you did grow up in Connecticut. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So where'd you grow up? What it was like? Do you have siblings? Maybe share a little bit about your family background. Sure. Um, Yeah. So I grew up in Stonington, Connecticut. Mystic. Most people know Mystic. Um, beautiful town on the ocean. So grateful. Didn't realize how much I took it for granted until I moved away. And then I was like, wow, I grew up in one of the most beautiful places. Um, My drinking started in high school. I remember feeling super anxious and angry if I couldn't get alcohol on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And my friends were like fine with watching a movie. And But like, I was also a high achiever, which really confuses people Mm -hmm. because it was like, I was getting straight A's, but it was like, I worked hard and then rewarded myself with alcohol. And then by the time I got to UConn, I was 
drinking and writing at the same time. I used to say, uh, write drunk, edit sober. Um, it was just, it just became like what I did. Um, but I have a biological brother, Zach, and, um, we were really, really close growing up. And then, um, my mom and dad divorced when I was nine, but remarried. Um, I won't get too much into the family story, but there's a lot of alcoholism in my family. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had to kind of like cope with that growing up. Um, and then the university of Connecticut was the cheapest option for college. And so I went there despite not really wanting to go there. And then I fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love to tell people like most of my drinking history is at UConn, but I got sober my senior year of college and I was able to make all new memories completely sober because you know this i lived in the area for a year after i graduated college um so i just the area is beautiful i love the support i got on campus i cannot say enough good things about uconn and i will just say that scholarship that i received changed my life with the um, UConn recovery community because I had about two months sober mm-hmm. and I applied for this scholarship and was like, I want to do all these things and, um, uh, make an impact on people's lives. Um, but I wasn't really sharing that I was in recovery at that point. Mm-hmm. And then I got it and was like, I got money for staying sober. Like it, it, reduced the stigma in my head. Mm-hmm. It turned it from this thing I was ashamed of, like, oh, I have such a problem drinking to like, wait, I'm doing something good. Like, I'm going to like be a better person. I'm going to be a better friend and I'm going to like change lives that way. So literally I feel like that scholarship was the moment my mind changed where I was like, I want to be an advocate now. Like I want other students to feel this. It's, it was such a good feeling. How did you even find recovery in that space? as a college student? I was working as a manager, a building manager at the student union. Mm -hmm. I was coming to work hungover, pretty much still drunk every day because I would drink until like three or four in the morning. And then I had to go to work at six. Mm -hmm. Um, And I basically told myself to one of my bosses and was like, I have a problem and I can't stop drinking. And I couldn't imagine a life like sober. I couldn't, I felt like this would be just the most depressing life. So I said to myself, I would rather drink every day and die at 25. At that point, I was like 20, 21 years old and was like, I'd rather die at 25. And my boss, Kim, one of my bosses, she was like, no, like you're going to get sober. And she's like, you're going to set up a therapy appointment at UConn um, with a therapist. And I had never been to therapy in my entire life, which is insane with everything I've ever been through. And so I was like, she's like, we're not going to fire you. We're not firing you. We love you. We want you here, but you need help. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I can't do it. And so I was like, I remember I just, I was sitting in the parking lot at UConn and I called and I did a triage call, set up an appointment And then I met with Jonathan Beasley, like Uh two weeks later. In that time for those two weeks, I drank so hard. I just was like blacking out every single day until the point I ended up in the hospital. 
I was drinking and driving, blacking out. And then I woke up in the hospital and I looked at the ceiling and I was like, where am I? And then I was like, I'm in the hospital. And I was like, I'm done. I am so done. I'm so sick of this lifestyle. Like Kim is right. Like I need to get sober. And so I had that readiness, which I think someone has to have. And I had that surrender moment. And I walked into Jonathan's office and I complained about everyone for an hour. Like I didn't even talk about myself. I was like, this person did this. And then he's like, let's talk about your drinking. And so we did. And he was like, you're past the point of harm reduction. Like you're going to die if you keep drinking like this. This is really severe. So he said, go to the Yukon recovery community. We have a meeting tonight. Nice. And so I walked over. I was so nervous. And I made friends with a bunch of young people who you probably know. And um, they just scooped me right up. And I have not had a drink since that day. That's incredible. Um, I want to pause for yeah. just a minute because you went fast through a couple of things that sure. I'm seeing as um, really powerful in students getting access to recovery. So the first thing sure. is you had a boss who knew what at least one option of what to do, which is incredible. And so we've been in this process of building recovery allies by doing formal trainings over the last couple of years at UConn. But just to start to have folks know what to do if that ever happened. So A, kudos to you for saying what the problem was and sharing it Mm -hmm. with somebody. Kudos to Kim. I don't know which Kim, if she's still there, but kudos to Kim for knowing not to ignore what you just shared, for being somebody that that could honor you and get you connected with a resource. But then you went to the hospital. Was that the first time you had been sent to a hospital for blackout drinking? No, I had gone once for a concussion, twice for a concussion from drinking. I had hit my head really really hard Mm -hmm. and I had bruises all over my body and I went because I was just super worried about my brain yeah um so that was it happened a couple of times and at some point in this conversation I'd like to hit on um my experience with community standards yeah what happened there so one of the things that I heard from one of my students is that transport her first transport to the hospital um was not a positive experience. So the first responders mm-hmm. did not treat her with compassion. And the medical staff on the receiving end in the emergency room um, did not treat her with any level of compassion. And this was the first time she had ever been in a hospital in her entire life. Didn't have mm-hmm. her phone, didn't have a friend wasn't treated by medical staff. And a lot has happened. So this was four years ago. So now we have recovery coaches in the emergency Mm -hmm. rooms that are that UConn would transport somebody to and, and the medical staff, the receiving staff have advanced in their understanding and empathy and knowing how to connect somebody with resources. But it sounds like you did not have that experience with those admissions. (laughs) Um, to be honest, I was so much in the blackout. I do not remember most of my experiences. Um, that last one, I just know that I passed out in front of 
law enforcement and they sent me to the hospital, but it wasn't until I woke up in the morning, I was like, where am I? They brought me my discharge paperwork, no conversation about recovery or anything. So I was just really blessed and lucky that I had that therapy appointment set mm-hmm. up already. Cause I probably would have just kept drinking like kept most going. people do. Yeah. Yeah. So as you mentioned at the beginning, the passion for advocacy that you and I share is that so much has happened and even that was probably seven and a half years ago to today, your experience of not getting connected to recovery in some way, or at least being offered the chance has transformed because of voices like yours. So tell Mm -hmm. me about the community standards experience. So I just feel so blessed. And I, um, so I almost got suspended from college. Mm -hmm. I had two months sober around the time I was getting the scholarship Mm -hmm. and I was hauled into community standards. I got a letter and I walked in and they had all the paperwork on their desk to like suspend me. And I talked to them about it and they were like, you have like five or six incidences on your record. And I was, they were like, we should have called you in before this, but it must've got lost in translation, but we suspend people after three incidences. Um, And I was able to like talk to them. And I said, I have been sober for two months and I want to stay sober. At that time I was doing the collegiate recovery program Mm -hmm. once a week. I did harm reduction group once a week. I did individual therapy once a week. I did a 12 step meeting every single day. And then I changed all my work hours to work Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights so that I wasn't tempted to party. So I changed everything in my life. And if I can like give any piece of advice, it's like respect yourself and be able to do that. Like Mm -hmm. it's okay to like change things, like to support your recovery for a time being. Um, and I, they recognize addiction as a disease, like for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. And they were like, we're going to give you a chance because like you actually are sober and want to stay sober. And so I just feel so grateful that they gave me that opportunity. And then these students in the, you must see this like every day, like the way that students come together for each other. And on the weekends, I was so triggered. I probably wanted to drink for a year after I got sober. Like every single day, it was painful. Like I cried. I just wanted to drink. And they would pick me up and we would just go do fun things and play cards and do sober things. Yeah. And so I'm I'm just so grateful for the recovery program. And I'm I'm so glad like you're you're doing a lot of good work now too. I am um your timing is so great because I've been I'm just about at my four year anniversary since I stepped onto Yukon's campus and started being a part of this field of collegiate recovery. And this week um really celebrates the fact that we have re define the space we have in campus as a recovery community center with staff available more hours than we've ever had before so we can be a drop-in center. And six first-year students who connected with me over the course of the summer, so they were showing up on day one, which usually it takes a while to get some traction. But Mm first-year students that got into recovery in high school. And so as you're sharing that, 
like this week has had students spontaneously making waffles in the kitchen, scheduling a 7.15 a.m. swim date at UConn Rec, and a bunch of them are planning to go to the lake tomorrow. None of this staff programmed or configured, like Mm -hmm. them just welcoming each other, figuring out what they have in common, which is obviously recovery, but all the other things that make up a human being. So I'm kind of riding on a high right now because the pandemic really shut our doors in a lot of ways. And student, you know, this is the biggest entering class. But a lot of times it was juniors and seniors who were our population. And that's not it anymore. We have, you know, like I said, brand new students coming straight out of high school to doctoral students who are coming back after uh, a whole life change. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that you caught fire like so quickly on day one is just incredible. And it's like wonderful to see. So mm-hmm. when you graduated, um, you're walking off having your recovery validated in a few ways, right? The fact that you didn't you didn't get dropped because of this community standards. And right. you got a scholarship that told you that recovery was valuable pretty quickly. Um, so what happened next? So then I had connected with the Association of Recovery and Higher Education. Mm-hmm. I saved my money. And I'm telling you, I had no money. Like I shared this recently, I was sleeping on a broken bed. I was working for an adolescent group home um, for adolescent boys in Bolton, around Bolton Coventry area. And I had no money. I was basically just buying pasta because it was like 50 cents a box and like Mm -hmm. making that every night. Like, and, but I saved enough money on the side to fly myself to Atlanta for a conference for collegiate recovery and learn how to build a program. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm going to do this. And that's kind of what I do in my mind. It's like, if I have a mission or I'm going to do something, like I'm going to do it. And I was like, I want to go to Colorado. I want to be in their master's program there, but they don't have a collegiate recovery program. The mountain region was a little bit more behind compared to the East coast. And so someone said to me, could have been Jonathan. I don't remember, but was like, you can do it. Like you can go start it. Mm -hmm. So I took in as much information as I could. And I remember on the flight home from Atlanta, I started drafting emails and I was like, I'm going to email every person at Colorado state university, like every, the counseling department, like everything. And I I started to realize recently, I'm like, my best trait is being annoying. Someone corrected it and they said it's persistence. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I'll use persistence. But like, I feel like if you want to get things done, kind of what we were talking about before this started, it's like, you have to, you just have to get your voice out there. You have to keep telling people because people are busy, Mm -hmm. but I think overall people do want to help. And so I got in touch with um, the head of counseling at Colorado State University before I started my program. And we just got this like this flowing. And I had got some students together. We went to a ski-a-thon in Keystone. I wrote a grant for Transforming Youth Recovery. We received the startup grant. And so we, we started meetings for people in 
like all recovery, substances, eating disorders, trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of how that goes. And so we had all these meetings. And then my favorite part was that I was just this huge advocate. I literally went across the campus to each department, um, diversity, prevention, science, the LGBT center, um, every department. And I would tell my story. Um, and I often had no idea how much stigma there still was. Hmm. Like people would look at me and be like, you're in recovery. Hmm. And it, it was just like, so crazy, but and and some people didn't even want to support us or work with us. And do you, do you ever get this? Because this is one of the things I hear um, is someone of traditional college age can't possibly have an addiction. I hear that a lot. Yes. Oh yeah. Like it's just so funny. Like people, people are like, "You look so young." I get it all the time. People think I'm 19. I'm 29, by the way, and people just think I look so young, and they're like how are you sober for seven and a half years? And I'm like, cause I started drinking when I was 13 and like, I drank addictively at 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had tons of consequences. And so it's just, there's so much work to be done on college campuses. And I even see it like professors joking about drinking mm-hmm. and like going out and drinking on the weekends when there's like people who are like being hospitalized every week like all the time. And so, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done, but I really enjoyed my advocacy work there. And I eventually passed the torch. Um, And I remember by the time I left, I had counted over like 75 people that I had met to help through that program. Mm -hmm. And they're still going right now. They did a huge Narcan distribution for overdose awareness day. And I followed them on Instagram and they just have really inspiring young people that are like leading the movement. And yeah. so it's just one of my favorite things. How did you find it. your your original crew? So I knew a lot of people through 12-step programs mm-hmm. and a lot of students that had no idea what collegiate recovery programs were. Cause yeah. like I said, they're not as popular in the mountain region. And I said to them, do you want to go skiing? Because the Association of Recovery and Higher Education is like, funding us to go skiing and it's just this whole event this skiathon mm-hmm. and they were like what that's a thing and so they were like yeah and so we went for this weekend it was like five or six of us and we went skiing and listened to all these keynote speakers and had the best time and they became my crew yeah we started we met every week at a coffee shop mm-hmm. because the school still wasn't really recognizing that recovery was important yeah And so we were like, well, we're going to do this important. And we met in the um, basement of a coffee shop called Mugs um, every Monday night for like a year and through the summer and everything. So it was great. That's awesome. So you passed the church and I think you took a southern journey, right? Didn't you go a little south Mm -hmm. to the desert? I did go south. I went to New Mexico. That was the next part of my journey. Yeah. And what made you leave Colorado? So here's something I'm really passionate about talking about is that just because you get sober doesn't mean that life magically gets better. Um, I had a lot of trauma. I had my mood disorder kicking in. Suicidal thoughts plagued me 
daily. Um, and I was also in the marriage and family therapy program, master's program at CSU. And it was triggering. There was a lot of work that when you're working with these children that have trauma, these couples that have conflict, I had a hard time doing it. And I hit my own bottom um, with a lot of things that were going on in my life that could be a whole different podcast of its own. And so I needed help. I had to admit that in my own sobriety in the last seven and a half years, I went to treatment four times for mental health Mm -hmm. and it added up to about a year. And so there was this place called Life Healing Center in New Mexico, and they had all kinds of like alternative treatment therapies and talk therapy and somatics. So working it out through your body, um, it was so fantastic. And then I developed the most amazing support system there. So I stayed and I went to 12 step meetings. I got really involved in my recovery again. And I was estranged from my family for three years during that time. And one day I woke up and I was like, I'm going to embrace forgiveness, healing. And something came over me. I don't know what that is, whether that's God, whatever, however, whatever it is, it's a miracle to me. And I have forever been changed like since then. And I feel so grateful. I've reconnected with my whole family. I'm really close with them again. And we're just working on our own healing journey at this point. Yeah. Um, so it was necessary. However, I never finished my master's program. So my plan is to go back next year and finish it because I'm really close to done. Yeah, that's incredible. And, you know, I, I, um, I've shared on the podcast before that four and a half years ago, I came to a standstill with life, mostly Mm -hmm. around my corporate career. But there were things that had led up my nephew, who was the same age as me had died from uh, alcoholism, he had never even come close to getting into recovery. And I had been in recovery for over 26 years at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. So a bunch of things just happened. And all of a sudden, I couldn't get through a day without crying for three to five hours and got diagnosed with general anxiety disorder, which in hindsight, I could see how that played out my whole life. But but I will forever be grateful that I had recovery from my alcoholism to tell me that there are things I can do. I don't I don't need to sit in this pain I have recovery tools and resources that I can leverage. And it sounds like you leveraged mm. them and got got yourself too. Because life in recovery, to me, has brought every blessing in life. It is incredible. But life still freaking happens. And so yeah. the difference is you at least have a place to start, you know, where mm-hmm. a lot of folks don't don't even know the tools, resources, people that can help get you through when life deals it up. You know, like the difference is if I was still drinking, I would be dead. Like there is between my bipolar, my trauma and how severe my drinking was like, I mean, like alcohol poisoning that turned my mouth and my fingers purple for weeks at a time, like severe alcohol poisoning. So between all of that, like I I wouldn't be alive at this point. So you know, they say like life on life's terms, yeah. like this is, I love the saying, like trauma isn't your fault, but healing is your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, I still have a very like compassionate approach and I, I don't think anyone should experience any type of trauma, but like when I can take ownership and be like, I am going to do this healing for myself and like be this empowered woman, like I just feel so inspired and like that I'm going to change people's lives and like do something good, you know? Yeah. You know, I, um, I really wasn't that exposed to bipolar disorder before I started working with Yukon. And, and now, you know, as with anything that I'm supposed to learn in life, it starts popping up elsewhere. So it's actually popped up in my um, extended family situation too. Mm-hmm. But I have found over the last four years that I've worked with almost zero students who don't have co-occurring disorders. Um, right. So if you were to guide somebody like me who hasn't had a lot of experience with bipolar, like what are the things in terms of support that are helpful for that piece of your recovery? So I will say I, number one, I believe in medication. Um, I believe in the right medication. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about taking medication that's not prescribed, mm-hmm. but, um, to have a doctor who's really good and knows your history because it was crazy for me. I had these thoughts of dying every day. And then I went to life healing center. They put me on the specific medication and everyone's different. Mm -hmm. I felt normal again. Like I was happy. I could wake up every day and function. And like, I could not function before. So I think I'm absolutely for that. And I know there's parts of recovery culture that that may not completely believe in medication, but I am the person to come to if anyone has questions about that. Yeah. Um, so that has been key for me, but then that doesn't do everything. So my friends, my support system, like they are solid. I work really hard to have amazing friends and amazing community. And so getting involved, whether it's 12 steps, 12 steps aren't for everyone. Um, I do enjoy them, but there's, she recovers. I've actually, um, been participating in the Phoenix sober active gym. Mm -hmm. So I took up boxing. And so now I'm a boxer. Um, they do some awesome restorative yoga classes. And so I'll do a couple of those, but for me, nature is huge. Mm -hmm. So if I'm feeling down or I feel depressed, like just getting out in nature, calling a friend, doing a guided meditation. I think those are all the the key ones for me. Yeah. Um, Speaking of the Phoenix, I'm a super fan and was in Colorado for the Multiple Pathways of Recovery Conference. And I have um, an irrational, intense fear of snakes. Like it's um, the last time I saw one, I did have a full-blown anxiety attack. Mm-hmm. Um, I went hiking in the Garden of the Gods with the Phoenix during that conference. And the Pretty. first the first thing they gathered us in the circle, you know, to meet each other and all that. And the first thing she says is we may see rattlesnakes, but just, you know, give them wa- a wide berth. And and I felt it all happening. And I was ready to call Uber and get the heck out of Dodge because we had all gone over. we had gone on a school bus. Right. Like the com- people in the conference that wanted to go. And mm-hmm. then I just said, you know what, there is no better place to face your fears than amongst these 25 people in recovery. And so I just laid it out there with the group. I followed the guide 
when her red hiking pants gave me all the comfort in the world. If I could see her pants, I felt safe because she had mm-hmm. been trained in how to deal with somebody like me. She goes, in addition to the first responder training, I've had the mental health training that will allow me to help you in the event that this mm-hmm. happens. And so those, you know, the resources and they come in so many different ways. And um, I still have the fear, but that was like a, I never did see one on the trip that probably helped, but it was just being in a situation where I knew I could count on my resources to help me get through what might happen. Um, and I too, I I had that core belief that I should not take medication for my mental health. And, mm-hmm. you know, I toughed it out after that kind of complete breakdown for three months. And I it was a year later, I had sustained a, a major physical injury and lost the ground that I had attained. And I did get a prescribed medication to help me with. Um, ironically, it's an antidepressant, but it helps with the anxiety. And and mm-hmm. it just put me in a place of of feeling normal. Like um, So I think everybody is different. But did it take you a while to find the right provider? Because I find in my own story and with um, student stories that sometimes it's hard to find the right provider that you can click with and can help. You. Oh yeah. Yeah. It took me a really long time. I, especially cause I've moved so much cause I was in Connecticut all in sobriety, Connecticut to Colorado to New Mexico. I came back to Connecticut for a year and then I just moved back out to Colorado a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. So I've had to jump around with providers and I've had all different kinds. Someone who's like, you need to take this like, and very demanding. And then my doctor now is like so collaborative. He'll talk about options and um, side effects of each one. And like what one sounds the best to me. And he specializes in addiction too, mm-hmm. um, and mental health. So it's just really, and he's a primary care doctor. So he does like a little bit of everything, but that for sure. And then therapists, like I have jumped around to so many therapists. Um, and so I just recommend to people like find someone who's a good fit. Don't feel bad about saying like, this isn't working out. If it's not people specialize in different things and people just have different personalities. So, um, yeah, that's, I guess that's what I would say about that. Yeah. So I'm curious, something I'm wrestling big time with right now is that, you know, my original recovery would tell me that recovery equals sobriety. And so you celebrate sobriety, you celebrate substance-free time. That's how you honor and celebrate recovery. And I have come to a place where I have a much more expansive view of recovery and that recovery doesn't necessarily equal sobriety or your whole journey of recovery might not equal the amount of time you've been substance-free. Um, and, and even in circles where folks have a really expanded mindset, I still see it kind of coming up that recovery equals substance free time. So I'm curious where you are in all that and what kinds of thinking you've explored. Okay. So I have been on such a journey with this and it's a really good conversation. Um, when I first got sober, I believe that recovery was abstinence-based recovery. Mm -hmm. So me abstaining from all substances meant that I was in recovery. 
Um, as I started to learn more about harm reduction, the movement, um, just the importance of it. And that like also people who use drugs are just as valuable as the person who's not using drugs. Like we're all worthy and valuable. Um, and so whatever people can do to like, like I have friends will be like, I don't want to give up drinking completely, but I need to make a lifestyle change. And I'll be like, okay, then like cut back or like, how, how does that work for you? You know? And I just believe it's up to every person to say like what their recovery is. Um, for me, it still is like that. I've been substance free is my recovery journey, but also over time I've added the mental health aspect into it. Um, so like I've had episodes of mania and depression in the last seven and a half years, but I've been in recovery in my mind from substances and bipolar for the last seven and a half years. So just really depends. There's a lot of thoughts about it out there. Yeah. And, you know, and that's why um, at the Yukon Recovery Community, we adopted CCAR's definition of recovery, which is if you're in recovery, if you say you are. Like, what, I love that. We don't need to fight about this. Um, when students walk into that house, which you're familiar, are you, you're familiar with the Cordial Stores house, right? Because I know it came after your time. I've never been <gasps> in that house. All right. You must make a visit when you're next in Connecticut. Um, I would love that. So it's this house that's over 250 years old. It was built in 1757. Wow. And we try to make it this cozy space with a meditation room and an art and gaming room and our living room space and the kitchen and all of that. Um, But where was I going with this whole thing? When, oh, what I want to be able to say to students, because we are seeing more students with eating disorders and self-harm disorders and anxiety and depression, and they're wondering, do I, do I fit here? Like, can, mm. I, can I be a part of this? And I'm like, absolutely. What I yeah. want them to know is, A, we have some guidelines because I want this one building on campus to be able to confidently say, this space is substance-free. So we need yes. to hold like one physical bricks-and-mortar place on campus to say it is substance-free. So we have some light guidelines around that. But, well, it's not light guidelines, but who gets access independent of staff being there? There are, there are some guidelines on how you qualify for that. But I want to be able to say what you'll find here is vulnerable sharing, honesty, and trustworthiness. So mm-hmm. like what you say here will stay here. Um, people will take risks and be vulnerable here. And if you're honest, a lot of things will get better in your life. It's like just to really keep it simple. Because I think that's what's missing in the connection on most college campuses, right? It's it's students, especially if you're not coming with your squad already or with your best friend, like finding that and finding it before you find drugs and alcohol as the means to connect um, can be hard. Yeah, I found that like, as far as that goes, like the biggest thing is not glorifying substance use. So if I'm going into a space, yes, I'm substance free, drinking was a huge part of my story. And then someone else, their issue is self-harm, but like substances aren't an issue and they still drink occasionally. 
Like I don't, it's going to harm me to hear about their story of like, yeah. they went out and had a really fun time at a party. So to like protect and keep everyone safe in that environment, not glorifying it is okay. But like, you know, everyone should be welcome that are like seeking a, a better life and better health around that. Yeah. And another thing I noticed was like at Colorado state university, when we had these meetings, um, because they're different than like 12 step meetings where you talk about a specific issue Mm -hmm. and we were all recovery meetings. So we were open and all of a sudden there would be four of us talking about an eating disorder Mm -hmm. and be like, I'm really struggling with my food intake. I'm binge eating, I'm restricting. And that's when we started being like, wow, a lot of this is Mm co-occurring and this should be a safe place to talk about anything as long as we're not triggering someone else. And I think you, you know, this well, there's a, the lines are blurry Mm -hmm. and it's confusing between what can be shared and what's triggering and the lines in that are difficult for sure. Yeah, I agree. And that's why for our meetings, they're always staff led um, Mm -hmm. in the space so we can help manage that. But I, I sometimes wonder if we're we're we always try to policy things or put a guideline or or rules and is that because we're avoiding difficult conversations. So can we mm-hmm. learn how to talk about the fact that and we had this example last year a student who was in recovery from cannabis use disorder was still drinking but sending to their fellow collegiate recovery members pictures of them out drinking on a Friday night, right? Mm-hmm. So the, yeah. the, that became explosive because we need to learn how to talk about that, you know? And, and frankly, when I sat down with a student and talked about it, they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely get it. Shouldn't have done it. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. I'll do better. But we've got to find ways to just – be able to talk about, you know, the, it's the old fashioned um, working agreement, the ouch rule, like, ouch. I love that. You know? Yeah. Like, like can we? And like, you know, I just, I'm at this point in my life where, so I'm 29 and I feel like I'm making so many mistakes at work, in my personal life, like I'll hurt someone and I'm just like, man, and I just have to get to the point where one, I take ownership for it. Mm-hmm. But not to dwell in it, like it, it's not helping me to like what they say in the big book, drift into morbid reflection. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so bad, I'm so bad. I'm. It's just like I made a mistake, and yeah. I'm making lots of mistakes, and that's also very human. And I grant a lot of forgiveness to people who have hurt me or made mm-hmm. mistakes. So it's just like grant myself that forgiveness too of making a mistake and. That's the thing about college campuses. We're all so young yeah. at that point. Like you do make a lot of mistakes and that's just part of the journey. And it's like, I love what you said, like, ouch. Yeah, that hurt. Okay. Like how can we improve this for next time? Yeah. You know? Well, and and I don't know that it's such a an age thing. You know, we recently did a podcast with Joe Powell, who's a recovery community leader out of Dallas, Texas. And Joe was talking about, cultural congruence and I hadn't heard mm-hmm. that I mean in higher ed I've, I've learned not being part of higher ed culture I've learned a lot of terms in the last four years I'd never heard of but 
I had not heard the name, I mean, the phrase cultural congruence. And I said, I'm going to be using that a lot because it makes so much sense. So when I moved into higher ed, it is a completely different culture. My colleagues represent different cultures. And Mm -hmm. so I'm making mistakes all over the place over the last four years because I've put myself in a whole new culture. And I also found that being part of the recovery community for the last 30 years and being closely connected with CCAR, which is a incredibly diverse on every demographic community. So when I got to stores and the recovery community tends to, re- in the beginning, tended to reflect young, white, affluent male, True. it, it yeah. was almost a culture shock. Because that's not what I know of the recovery community. I, you know, more exposure to folks who have not enough resources to get the help they need. And here we have all the resources in the world, but it comes down to our individual choices. So all I'm saying is I'm making mistakes all over the place. I'm apologizing often um, and trying to figure out, you know, I might not agree with you. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'm making a mistake, but I'm making a mistake because I might not agree with you. And so not necessarily apologizing for everything and trying to figure True. out where am I uneducated and where where do I just my values and belief systems don't line up with that. So mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know I if you're, you're bumping into that because Colorado, New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Connecticut, like those are vast cultures Mm -hmm. to adapt to well you know a little off subject but not completely but i'm i'm gay and i'm part of the lgbt community and a big part of my journey is one i mean this is also at work too with people just accepting that people aren't always going to like you they're not going to always like what you represent or the what you're bringing to the table and that has always been so hard for me as a people pleaser. I'm like, I just want people to like me, but um, I'm stepping out there into the world in a little bit more advocacy work around the LGBT community. And, you know, I, I'm at this point where I'm like, I'm starting to learn. I'm like, it's okay. Like, it's okay. If someone doesn't someone doesn't believe in me or doesn't agree with my sexual orientation. Um, I get to set my own boundaries around that. Yeah. So I can be like, I don't really want to be friends with you, but like, I don't feel like I have to respond with anger anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like a huge, where I'm at in my life right now is like a huge learning process for me and like how I want to be and how I want to show up in the world. And to remember, like, there's so many people that support me and there's so many people that love me. And so instead of focusing on that one person who said something that like, rubs me the wrong way or doesn't agree with something I say. It's like, why don't I focus on the change I am able to make and the people that are just amazing and that love me for who I am. So yeah, I'm really working on that right now. That's awesome. I'm still working on it too. So again, not a matter of age or how long you've been in recovery. Still, So I'll probably be working on it for life then. Yeah. I mean, just this past year, I've been working on embracing my forehead. I mean, I know mm-hmm. that's kind of ridiculous, but like I have, I have always tried to cover my forehead. Um, and, and so like, it's really, it's just recovery just allows you to continuously grow and look at things that are 
getting in the way. Um, so kind of dumb example, but a couple of things no, I want to, as we're coming to wrapping up, a couple of things I wanted to talk about. So the first one was, um, I was so excited that you were able to come to our first ever recovery friendly campus conference at UConn in April. And I just wonder what kind of some takeaways were for you from that or things that you hope we would do. Um, I just overall, I, I love the community aspect of it and um, being able to collaborate with a bunch of people all over campus. Um, I, I would love to see more professors get involved um, just because, you know, they, they play such an important role in their students' lives. Yeah. And when a student goes to them for help, like knowing how to respond. Um, but I feel like UConn has done such a good job with, you know, get like asking good speakers and also, I'm just like so excited about these scholarship opportunities for students, um, especially after, I think I was the first recipient of that, actually. I think so, yeah. Um, we missed 2017, but we've had one every year since then. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's great. Like, I think what you're doing is great and it's, it's going to change students' lives for sure. I agree with you. You know, professors in my mind are also in many of the professions that we offer are training first responders, and and I mean it first responders in terms of therapists, counselors, mm -hmm. social workers, and we're still using outdated language, and we're still not really talking about the impact of substances on mental and behavioral issues. Um, yeah. And then I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, I know that you're doing more advocacy for young adults in recovery in the LGBTQ community. And so, you know, what some of your passion in thinking about that right now? So, yeah, I have a lot going on. I did start um, a blog site called nextgenerationrecovery.com. And it's pretty much saying like, it's focusing on marginalized communities that haven't had a voice. And I have a guest blog where people can come on and share part of their story or their story around how recovery has been harder being in a marginalized population. So um, that's like one little side project I'm working on. And then I have a girlfriend and we started a Instagram account called uh, it's at breathe and love one, four, three. And so we make like fun videos documenting our love story. And we're going to share on trauma, substance use, mental health, and the intersection of it with the LGBT community. As we know, you know, marginalized populations are more likely to use drugs or substances. Yeah. Um, so we did that and we are actually going to be starting a podcast, um, probably not until the new year. We're going to, we're trying to get like a good setup for it, but we'll talk about certain issues with that and around sexual orientation and religion and faith and being able to have God in your life. And just like the complexities of that, that we both experienced so much. Yeah. Um, so we have that coming out and then we'll probably create a YouTube channel and then a dream down the road for us is to create tiny home villages mm -hmm. in areas that are like safe spaces for the LGBT community. As yeah. we know, people are discriminated against 
um, in housing, employment. And I know when I go on Airbnb, I look for like an LGBT friendly, just, just so I know I'm safe, um, traveling, but I'll say my big goal, um, maybe my 20 year vision is I want to make a big difference in school systems, middle school, high school and college, um, creating a platform and maybe curriculum around helping teachers, professors to recognize signs of mental health and substance use Mm -hmm. and really transform the way that we treat students when we find out they're struggling. Mm -hmm. Because right now it's really based on like a punishment model, like, oh, you're drinking or you use drugs, you're getting kicked off the basketball team. And it like, it doesn't make sense because like, that's the one thing that's like saving this person's life. And it's a really healthy outlet. So like, how can we get down to like, you need therapy, like what's, what's going on for you, you know? And so I really want to stay involved in the school systems. I definitely want to focus on high schools because I think that's where a lot of it starts. Yeah. Um, starts young. So prevention and intervention, but yeah, I I have a lot of lofty goals that are going on in my head right now. Oh, I think you're going to achieve them. I don't really have a doubt on that. I think the, the way you approached your recovery from the first day that you really were offered it is a great indicator of what's to come. So I hope that you will stay connected with us. And I know we have high hopes of seeing you in person in November at UConn in our recovery community. And um, it's so great great to see you, Um, Ashley. It's great to get to know you better because, you know, I've I've heard of you for so long, but I hadn't had a chance to hear your whole story. And I wish you all the best with all the goals in the future and the ones that you're working on right now. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate you asking me. It's such an honor to be on here. Thanks. You have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters Podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ccar, the number four, recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. And you can use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.